Hi, everyone. In my message this morning, my goal is to show us that, yes, God is holy, He is lofty, He is high, and yet at the same time, He is a Father to us, and we can approach Him without fear or apprehension or anxiety, that He loves us as His children. Thanks, Jamie. Morning, everyone. I don't know if you're all close enough to see that I have some scabs on the the bridge of my nose. Can you see that? And and a scab on my chin here. I just wanted to explain briefly what happened. Um, Last Thursday night as we were leaving house group, which uh, my wife and I are currently leading here at the church Thursday evenings, uh, we were making our way out to the car, and I was in a hurry, and I cut across the grass. And there was a place where the, the sidewalk had a ledge, and I was stepping back onto the sidewalk, and my toe caught on the edge of the sidewalk. And um, I face-planted on the sidewalk, so that's, uh, that really hurts. <laughs> my first thought was, oh no, I'm going to have to spend the rest of the night in the emergency room. But um, then when, uh, when we actually looked at it, my nose wasn't broken or anything. What wasn't too bad. Now... Um, not wanting to always, you know, like look, you know, clumsy or anything like that. I sent a picture to my children that night and I wrote a little story. I made something up to describe what had happened. So I'll read part of it to you right now, okay? Here, it starts like this. My picture with my face and it was bruised some at that time. I said, they appeared without warning out of the shadows. I instinctively pivoted, placing myself between my wife and our attackers. (laughs) The big one came at me first, just the way I like it. (laughs) His big lumbering fist shot toward my head. He was quicker than I expected. My training took over. I stepped inside his punch, (laughs) swung my arm up and over his, pinning his arm against my side. As I violently turned my body away from his, the big man's elbow cracked like the sound of a small caliber rifle. (laughs) One down, two to go. (laughs) So the story continues and the other two go to find a similar fate to this one. And then I said this, uh, Lori and I ran for the car. We almost made it when I reached into my pocket for the keys. This threw me off balance, and I tripped, fell, and face-planted onto the sidewalk. (laughs) But my wife still thinks I'm a hero. (laughs) Yeah, those three guys couldn't take me, but getting the keys out of my pocket was too much for me. Well, Father, uh, we're thankful for your goodness. Um, Thank thank you, God, that uh, you love us. Thank you that we can laugh, laugh at ourselves, and uh, just enjoy each other's presence. And Father, as we come before you today and and look at your word, I just ask that you would reveal, open our minds. Holy Spirit, teach us and show us more of this great God that we serve, that we love, that we honor, that we worship, and that we know as Father. Jesus' name, amen. In high school, I sat behind a guy uh, named Larry, and his first name started with a C, so we were in our homeroom class, we were right beside each other. Our homeroom teacher was uh, really just about my favorite teacher in all of our years of high school, Mr. Yaney, 
And he was a big guy. He taught biology, and I'd taken advanced biology and stuff like that. And I just really liked the guy. He was the kind of person you would um, aspire to be like. Now, Larry, who sat directly in front of me, for some reason hated this guy. And I mean, for, I don't know why, but he, just, he had just taken a real negative attitude towards Mr. Yaney. And he would sit in homeroom and mouth cuss words at him. And he, one, one time he was sitting there with his middle finger raised, subtly but clearly, to the teacher from the front. Mr. Yaney came back, picked him up out of the chair, it picked him up. He grabbed him and jerked him up in the air. Desk comes up with him a foot or two off the ground and then crashes and uh, took him down to the office. But I was, I'm, I'm taken with this, that two different people look at exactly the same person and one of them loves this guy and admires him and wants to be like him. And the other one sees something totally different and responds in, 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 uh, in accord with what he sees. And so for some reason, he saw someone that he was afraid of, someone that he didn't like, someone that was, that was obnoxious to him. And you know, when you, when you respond to someone like that, you're either going to respond to them in fear and draw away, or you might do what, what Larry very unwisely did, and that is antagonize that person. But uh, my point is this, the way we view God determines how we are going to respond to God. All right. That was a lightning bolt, I think, a lightning strike, something. So the way we view God determines how we're going to respond to God. If you view him as distant and, and, and uh, removed, then you're going to probably have a fearful attitude towards him, or at least you're going to feel like he's cold and uncaring and not, not really engaged with your life. If you view him as a father who's loving and kind and good, then you're, going to view, then you're going to relate to him as someone who is approachable and someone who is there for us. And the simple truth is, God really is both. He really is lofty. He really is high. He really is exalted. He really is more than we can comprehend. He, he is greater than anything we can comprehend. And in that respect, he is distant. But he is also a father, and he loves us, and he welcomes us into his presence. And in that respect, he's close. And so we need to, we need to understand that both of these things can be true at the same time. And as you look at Scripture, in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, here's what we read. This is, uh, Paul is concluding this epistle to Timothy, and he concludes it with his great kind of crescendo of, of exhortation about walking with God and loving God and, and, uh, and, and not taking our relationship with him lightly. And then he says this, for he, God, is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So the blessed and only sovereign, king of kings, and literally that means king of those who are filling the role of kings. So all the kings of the earth are just filling a role. God is actually king. And then Lord of lords, Lord of those who are filling the role of lords on the earth. And so he's above all. In fact, it says he dwells in unapproachable light. 
And so God's, God's glory is so great that what he's saying here, humankind just cannot enter into the fullness of that revelation of God's light and his greatness. It's unapproachable light. And he goes on to say, whom no one can see or ever has seen. And then to him be honor and eternal glory and dominion. It'd be very possible to take this passage and to look at it and say, wow, God is just, man, he's way out there. He's unapproachable. He's unattainable. I could never know him. And, And hopefully, if I cower before him, hopefully, if I do good enough, he'll let me into heaven when I die. But as far as knowing him now or even knowing him then, uh, you know, that, that's, that's an impossibility. It's possible for us to look at, look at a passage like this and come away thinking that God is to be feared in the sense of, I am afraid of what he's going to do to me. Now, feared in the sense of, I really respect him, just like I respected Mr. Yaney. I was never afraid he was going to grab me and jerk me out of my chair like he did Larry. Never crossed my mind, never had a hint of fear of him. But I had a real strong, real strong respect for him. And, and, I, and I did fear him in that respect. But the, the negative fear of God, thinking that as soon as I step out of line, this God who dwells in unapproachable light is going to hammer me. As soon as I, and he's looking for opportunities to get us. You know, he's, he's actually looking for opportunities to come after us. That would be easy, and I think a lot of people have that attitude. And we have kind of like that sense that that's how, that's who God is, so that's how we have to relate to him. The Bible teaches uh, something different than that. Now, in the book of Hebrews, there's one place, I believe it's in Hebrews 11, it, where it says, uh, he says that our God is a consuming fire, and what he's doing is he's writing to the Hebrew Christians who were in mass, they had this thing going where there was this movement because they were all facing persecution and they were thinking of abandoning the name of Christ and because that was why they were being persecuted by, by more Old Testament type Jews. And so they're thinking about just, let's just go back to the Old Testament ways and then the persecution will end and maybe some of them are thinking, well, we can secretly believe in Jesus, but we don't need to name him. We don't need to be his actual followers overtly. We'll just, we'll just hide all of that. And so what, what the writer of Hebrews was trying to say to them was, look, if you do that, if you deny Christ, then there's only one thing left, and that is God is a consuming fire. And that's taken from the Old Testament and an illustration of God on Mount Sinai. And so when, when you look at it and you realize that, then we can see that what he's saying in that passage even is come in through Jesus, and, and you, don't have to, you, you don't have to worry about God as being in this unapproachable light. You, you don't have to fear God as a consuming fire if you come to him through Jesus. So don't abandon Jesus because if you don't receive Jesus, then all you have is, yes, God is a consuming fire. And so you look at these and, 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 and you have to ask yourself, what do I think of God? How do I balance this out? You know, Jesus said in John chapter 2, John chapter 3, that the light had come in, or John wrote this about Jesus, the light had come into the world, but men rejected the light because they liked, men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And you see, God is an all-consuming fire, 
But Adam and Eve didn't find him to be that. Right at the very beginning, if you had asked Adam and Eve, can you see God? They would have said, he, he, he comes down to us every night. He walks with us. We read that in Genesis 3, that he came in the cool of the evening when God used to walk with Adam and Eve. They would have said, well, of course, he's here. We see him. And, and, and are you afraid of him? No, we're not afraid of him. Why would we be afraid of him? But then we see when they sinned, when they turned away from God. And, and I've described that before as something more than just a simple act of disobedience. What they actually did when they ate that fruit was they believed God's enemy instead of believing God. And by doing that, that was a massive act of betrayal of their relationship with God and their covenant relationship with God. And they stepped out of relationship with God and they actually stepped into relationship with his enemy. But that was when they feared. That was when God shows up and they hear, they hear his presence moving in the garden. And rather than running to him to be with him, they hide themselves and cover themselves. So you see, it, it is this sin thing that causes us to like darkness rather than light, mankind in general, to like darkness rather than light, and to fear God's presence. But as, as we work through this, as we look through it, we're going to see some really cool things. I want to show you um, a passage in the Old Testament that talks about Moses actually walking right into this consuming fire. In fact, in Exodus uh, 24, the setup for this is that God has brought them out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've come now to Mount Sinai, and God is making them into a nation right now. He's giving them laws as a nation and a covenant with him uh, as an, so that they become a national entity, a national presence. And in the process of that, God comes down on the mountain, and God warned them. He said, don't let anyone touch this mountain. He said, don't even come to the base of the mountain. Don't even let an animal come to the base of the mountain because if they do, they'll die because God's presence is there. And the simple truth is that God as a consuming fire, when a person who is living in their sin, they don't know Jesus, they haven't, come, they haven't received a new nature, they haven't received his righteousness, when a person who doesn't know God comes into his presence then all they can know him as is a consuming fire. And, and they, they literally fall apart. If you've ever seen um, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, when they open the ark and the light comes shining out and the people around it just kind of like implode or explode or something. It's, it's not so much that God's saying, oh, you saw me, now I gotta kill you. You know, like, like, they, they, like they say in the spy movies, that if I tell you, I'll have to kill you. You've seen me, yet you're not allowed to do that, so I'm sorry, but you're gonna have to die. It isn't that, it is just that God's presence is so magnificent and so pure that a sinful person cannot exist in his presence. That's why his presence is a consuming fire. And, and yet we see here, God says all of that, but then in Exodus 24, 17 and 18, says this, to the Israelites, these are the people down on the plain looking up at the mountain. This is Exodus 24, verses 17 and 18. And it says this, to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain and he stayed in the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So previous verses describe this. 
God's presence descends on the mountain like a cloud. The cloud becomes fire. And so there's this fiery cloud on top of the mountain. And this mountain that no one's allowed to touch. But God calls Moses to come up on the mountain. And Moses goes up on the mountain and he walks right into that fire that is representing God's presence, the presence of God in this consuming fire. He walks into the consuming fire, but not only does the consuming fire not kill him, it sustains him for 40 days. And this is because God had cleansed Moses. This is because God, in knowing Jesus was going to come and die on the cross for Moses' sins one day, he just kind of, he took that and he just took it back and applied it to Moses so that Moses was able, because he was cleansed of his sin, to come right into this consuming fire. And so you can say, yeah, God is a consuming fire, but as a child of God, as a son of God, not only does it not destroy me, it sustains me. And I can come into his presence. And there would be a big question as to whether or not I can actually see him in his fullness. I mean, God is infinite and so massive and, and awesome that for me to, to fully comprehend him, and this passage says no one has seen or can see. We can't, can't experience him fully and because it'll take eternity for us to explore him and to see more and more and more and more of who he is. But we can see what he's like. In a similar way, I cannot explore the entire Pacific Ocean. It would take, in a hundred or a thousand lifetimes, you couldn't explore the bottom and everything, all the, all the uh, ravines and valleys at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. But I can get into the water, and I can experience what that water is like. And so I can know, okay, this water's salty, it's refreshing, it's what, whatever it is, it, I can experience it even though I might not be able to experience it in, in absolutely every way in the sense of exploring all of it. And so Moses actually walks into this consuming fire and not only survives but is sustained by the fire. Then in, in another incident in Exodus 24, we read this, God tells Moses, he says, I want you to bring Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders with you. Now, this, is, this passage blows my mind, but listen to what it says. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. There they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there seemed like a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli, which if you look that up, that is a stone that is a semi-precious stone that's a very beautiful, bright, deep, resonant blue. And so this beautiful blue sea is underneath him, a surface. And it's as clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. So now what we see is, these 74 of them, including Moses, go up on the mountain. They actually have a meal with God. Did you know that? 70 of the elders of Israel saw God and had a meal with him. And they're eating with him. But do you know what had happened prior to that? Moses had made an offering of a bull. And he took the blood and he sprinkled the blood on those 70 elders. So in the Old Testament, that was a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus and the blood that Jesus would shed on the cross. And with this shedding of blood and the sprinkling of blood on them, they were cleansed of their sin so they could come into God's presence. 
And so they also entered into this consuming fire of God's presence and enjoyed his presence and ate this covenant meal. And listen, eating and drinking in his presence. They're not just nibbling. It's talking about a a meal they had together. It's incredible to think of that. But even even in the Old Testament era, before Jesus came, people came into God's presence in this way. Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, 7 Isaiah has this vision of God and it says he was high and lofty and lifted up and the seraphim are all around and the kind of thing Micah was describing earlier, angels all around and they're bowing and they're worshiping and they're shouting praise and worship to God and they're singing to God. And most, uh, Isaiah is brought into the throne room in this, pre, in this relationship with God and he says this, He says, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I've seen the the living God. And when he says, I am undone, what he means by that is, literally, I'm coming apart at the joints. That's that's what the Hebrew word means, is that like, I'm breaking apart. You know, I can't handle this. I'm gonna be dead any second. And here's what happens. It says this. An angel came and took a hot coal off a burn, off a, an, a, a, like a, a, um, an altar that was there. And, and the angel comes and it says, with it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And so it was by God's redemption and cleansing that Isaiah was able to be in the presence of this God who is a consuming fire, who dwells in unapproachable light. Now in the New Testament, Acts 7, 56, Stephen, who was um, the first martyr, as he is being stoned to death, it says, he, Stephen, said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen saw God, he saw him, and this was, post, this was after Jesus had died for our sins, after salvation had been fully accomplished, the resurrection has occurred, the Holy Spirit has come, and Stephen is a man now with a new nature. In the Old Testament, they, they, they didn't get new hearts. That was something that was prophesied by Ezekiel and Jeremiah that one day, what's gonna happen is I'm gonna actually plant a new heart in you. I'm gonna take out your heart of stone and I'm gonna give you a new heart that will love me and honor me that will be a righteous heart. And so uh, Stephen has already received this and so there's no need for any, any sprinkling of bull's blood on him. There's no need for an angel to bring a hot coal to touch his lips because of Jesus. Because he knows Jesus and he's already been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and so he can come into God's presence. Now, whether or not he saw God in his fullness, I don't think he did. He saw, he saw God, but there's so much more to God than we can ever see or ever know. And so, as, as we go on, we are actually told to come to God boldly. The Bible tells us that. And so in the First Timothy passage, if that's all you look at, you might come away thinking, well then, I have no hope of ever knowing God because no one can see him or know, or, or know him and, and he is so much greater, I can't even approach him. But in Hebrews, we're told this in the book of Hebrews chapter four and verse six. Let us then, and he's talked about Christ and everything Jesus has done for us. He says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may find, receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So we can actually come into God's presence boldly, with confidence. You don't have to kind of like slip in and stand by the door, you know, hoping that no one notices you're there. You don't have to come in and, and cower and grovel. Coming boldly, you know, the picture is of a king. And in those days, kings, um, when you went into a king's chamber, in, into a king's palace, th- they would be up on a very high throne. And, and sometimes they would be like 20, 30 feet off the ground, and then there'd be a layer for their first level of, of uh, advisors, and another layer, and another layer, and finally down on the very, very bottom would be where the person would come in, and you're just hoping and praying that you don't do something wrong or say something wrong, and the king dislikes you and has your head taken off. And you, so you go into the presence of the king with great fear and trembling and with hesitation and just making, just, boy, I don't want to make the wrong move. I don't want to, I don't want to have the wrong look in my eye. I don't, I don't want to say the wrong thing. And yet here he says, no, nah, don't worry about that. Just come in. Just come in. Come in boldly. And did you know the Bible says, Jesus said, little flock, don't be afraid. Your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So it gives God, it gives God pleasure when we enjoy the blessings of his kingdom. And so we can come boldly into his presence. We can come boldly knowing that he's a good father, knowing that that he loves us and he receives us, that we are cleansed because we have Christ's righteousness. We don't come in based upon, you know, ever since I was born, I've been righteous. No, that's not the way it works because ever since I was born, I have not been righteous. And if I had to come in just based upon what I've done in my lifetime, I'd be consumed by his presence. But I come in based upon Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So we become righteous when we receive Jesus. He changes, and by that I mean, before I accepted Jesus, by nature I was a sinner, By nature, I was inclined to walk away from God, to step away from God, to do things my own way. When I accepted Jesus Christ, not only were all my past sins forgiven, but that inner heart inclination to walk my own way and reject God's ways was changed. He changed my heart, gave me a new heart. And in that, he gave me Christ's righteousness so that now I stand before God and I am, he views, I'm righteous before him. And what that means is now my heart is inclined towards him instead of being inclined away from him. Now, I still do things that would make it look like my heart's inclined away from him, but that doesn't change the fact that I have a new nature and I'm righteous any more than Before I came to know Jesus, when I had a sin nature, there were times I did things that you'd look at and you would say, well, that was a pretty righteous thing to do. I mean, I was a a good grandson. I was a good brother to my little sister. I did other things that would you look at and say, yeah, that's kind of, that's what God would want you to do. But by the fact that I did some righteous things, that didn't change my sin nature. I was still a sinner. And now that I've been made righteous, the fact that at times I still sin doesn't mean that, I, that it changes my nature. I'm still righteous by nature. 
I'm, I'm still a child of God with an inclination towards his heart to love him and to follow him. And so because of that righteousness, we are sons and daughters of God. Romans 8, 14 and 15 says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And that Abba, Father means intimate. It's an intimate call to the heart of God. Did you know that because of the work Jesus has done in you and for you, if you've received Jesus, that God, the, this is mind-blowing, but God the Father loves you the same way he loves Jesus. When we say God wanted a family, that's what he wanted. And when we say that Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren and cistern, when we say that, that's exactly what it means. That God, and here we read this in John 17, 23. Jesus said this, he said, I am in them and you, Father, are in me. Then he says, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and then get this, and that you love them as much as you love me. That's John 17, 23. And so the Father loves you as a believer in Christ the same way he loves his own son, Jesus, who is part of the Trinity. That doesn't mean that we're part of the Trinity. Don't take that that way. But the same love that the Father has, the same Trinity love he has for his son and for the Spirit, you and I are brought into that love. Now, how does this all apply? Well, I think that, um, let me just share an illustration with you that I think will help, help draw it in, into some focus of application. But let me say this. We do not need to relate to God based upon our behavior. Now, if I'm really born again, then my heart is inclined towards him. If I'm living a life where my heart is not inclined towards him, and I'm just going along my merry way, and I'm never convicted of that, I never, I never sense any guilt over that, I don't have any remorse over that, then I probably don't know Jesus. And that's a whole different message. But my heart is inclined towards him, I'm walking in his direction, and, and, and he knows that. But along the way, I stumble. And along the way, I get distracted. I remember taking hikes as a kid with the Boy Scouts and, and we have 20 or 30 young guys and we're trying to get them all to the same place down, you know, down two or three miles down river. And as we're going, you had to keep counting heads because guys would get distracted. They'd get off the trail, they'd find some berry bush and they'd stop and you had to go find them and get them back onto the trail. But we all made it because we were all headed the same direction, even though some got distracted at times and fell off the trail. Now, the thing, that, uh, the thing that we do is we have a tendency when we get distracted to think, oh my, God must be mad at me now. God, God must not be happy with me now. And this happened to me really just two weeks ago. I had had a series of nights where I didn't sleep well. I wasn't getting up you know, when I normally would. I was just getting dressed, eating, and rushing off to the office and no quiet time, no, no, private, no personal worship uh, before my day begins. And, and I'd always tell myself, well, I'll, I'll take time once I get to the office to have a quiet you know, time with God. And then I get to the office, and I know you all think that I don't do anything, that I'm a pastor, and I mean, <laughs> you know, I just work one day a week. But um, there's a lot to do. 
a lot of meetings and a lot of people and then, and then uh, you know, phone calls and people just drop by, and, which I always, I try to welcome as much as I can. But so the, my days would just rip by and suddenly it's evening and I didn't have a quiet time, so I'm thinking, well, okay, tomorrow morning. And then that night I didn't sleep again and or I woke up at two o'clock and didn't get back to sleep till four or something like that. And so I'm coming to the end of the week and uh, fortunately, I didn't have to preach here that Sunday, but I was scheduled to speak at a conference at North Star Church Sunday night. And I'm wrestling with what am I going to say there? And then I'm saying, oh, God, you got to help. And, and then I thought, well, why would you want to help me? I've ignored you all week. You know, I haven't really been pressing into you this week. And so I started having this sense of just guilt over that and, and feeling like, um, you know, like, well, of course, why, why, you know, I'm being a hypocrite by asking God to, to help me now. And here's what, here's what the interaction that transpired. Because I'm thinking, why would God want to use me this weekend after I've been so distant from him all week? Um, so, so I'm feeling defeated and totally defeated. And on Friday, God spoke to me and reminded me that he's my father and, and said this. He said, I'm your father. He said, you're a father. Have you ever had a time when your kids have drifted from you? Yes. How did you respond? I wanted them back. How did you respond? I, I, I was more eager to see them. I was more eager to have them call me. I was more eager to have to spend time with them, even than when we were humming, we're just, everything's just going great relationally. And I thought of, I mean, I've experienced that with all my kids at one time or another, but I thought of my second son in Champaign. I think he probably was a sophomore in high school at the time. And um, just really felt like we were growing distant and knew it was a crucial time in his life and didn't want that. And, and we would argue about some of the people he was hanging out with or things he was doing. And, you know, you just can't overpower a person's will. I mean, if you can, then it's probably, probably not a healthy thing anyway. But uh, a, a good friend of mine wisely advised me, rather than trying to put pressure on him, spend more time with him. And so we had a friend who was an Olympic athlete. He was in the decathlon in 1976. And, and um, I asked Fred if he would work out with us and, and teach us how to you know, do these exercises. So we worked out with Fred three times a week for two or three months. And then we bought a weight set and continued working out together. And so it wasn't that I wanted, like I was seeking him. Even though I felt like we were growing distant and he was drifting from me, during that time, I was seeking him. I wanted to find something to do with him because he was mine, because he's my child. And I wanted to keep him close. I wanted to keep, and so I just realized that that's how the Father is with us. That when you and I start feeling like, oh boy, God, I've let you down, I haven't done this, or, I haven't, or maybe, maybe I have actively, I've done this, and I've done that, and I shouldn't have... Uh, boy, the, the Father, is, he's, he's eager to, gi to give you the kingdom, to give you the blessings of the kingdom. And, and one of those great blessings is just free relationship with him. And that's when it says, come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And so when we, when we think of God as, I mean, we, need, we can't forget that he is great, that he is awesome, that he dwells in this unapproachable light but we need to recognize that we get to approach the unapproachable light. That's, that's the greatness of the gospel. We get to approach the unapproachable. We get to know the unknowable. We get to be children of the great, awesome God 
consuming fire, yes, his children, we can run into his arms. You know, it's, it would be easy to know him like a, a child whose father is the king, who's raised by nannies, and the only time they ever see their dad is when he's on the throne, and that's all they know of him. And of course, what would they think of him? They would fear him. But if you're a child of the king and you see him on the throne, but then he wrestles with you that night, and, he, and, and you get, to, you get, to, uh, you get to, to smell his smell because you're so close, that, then you realize, yeah, he is great, but he's my father. And, and I don't have to fear him. I can come right into his presence without any fear or anxiety. I can come into his presence boldly. And even though I might be feeling like I'm drifting right now, he's all the more eager for me to come to him. And so I'm gonna pray right now. And I just, I, just, I wanna pray that anyone here that has been struggling with, you know you're a Christian, you know you've accepted Jesus, but you feel unworthy, you feel like you have done things that, or you've, you've just ignored God, or you've done things that you shouldn't have. You know, he, he's just so eager to welcome us back. You don't have to be ashamed or afraid because no matter what, even if you had done everything right, you would still be coming to him on the basis of grace and mercy and what Jesus did and not what you did. Does that make sense? Okay, so Father, we're just so thankful to know you. Would you stand with me? We are so thankful for your goodness. You are great. You are eternal. You are, um, you are all powerful. You are all present. You created, you existed before any of this existed, and you created it just by speaking a word. Just show us more of your greatness. Let us, give us revelation in our minds. Open the hearts of our minds to see more and more and more of just your vastness and how wonderful and awesome and great you are. But we thank you that you are also our father, and we can come to you as a father, and we can say Abba. It, it, it's, it's the term of endearment in, um, in, in that culture, Abba. Daddy, Papa, we can, we can come to you that, that close and you're that close to us and you receive us. And even if we've drifted, you, you receive us. And we come back just like the prodigal son comes and we start saying, oh, Father, I have done this and this. And before we can even get it out, he's just so overjoyed. You're so overjoyed to have us coming back to you that you just embrace us and you don't even let us finish because Jesus already took care of all of that. And so I just encourage you right now, if you have felt distant, if there have been things in your life that, that you've, you've felt broken in your relationship with God over, like there's a break in your relationship, just turn to him right now. Just turn around and turn to him, and you're going to find out he's a lot closer to you than you think. And he's standing there with a smile on his face, with arms open to welcome you back, and to welcome you just to live in that, in his presence, and then those quiet times, that time of worship, obedience, then just becomes part of the joy of walking with him rather than an attempt to please him. So I just bless you with just new levels of peace in your relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen.